Hi, Nancy. Hi, Shane. How's your uh, How's your isolation going? It's going well. You know, <laughs> I mean, as good as can be. I guess that's like the what everyone's saying. We're in week what eight now? Yeah, it's just all running together. Um, as we're talking, so I guess for most people, it's like, how's it going? It's like it's going. Yeah. You know? We're We're figuring it out. We're still doing episodes, so that's nice. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, today we are talking about natural hazards, and we'll get into that. Um, but I, I realized as we were kind of talking before this that I guess we've been kind of, both of us have been fortunate that we've never really had any major, uh, I guess, catastrophes happen to us. Yeah, we were talking about, like, have you ever been kind of involved with a natural disaster, like a hurricane or tornado, uh, wildfires? I mean, luckily, earthquakes. Yeah. I guess luckily, neither of us have experienced, I mean, we've all had the, the snowstorm and the small things, but... Um, you know, the really big ones, That's that's been fortunate, yeah. Yeah, I mean, even like, I in a really bad thunderstorm, I had a tree fall in a house I was living in, but it didn't really do a ton of damage. Oh my God, actually, no, this is funny. I, I totally forgot about this until we were talking about this right now. This this That was back when I lived in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, but recently, last year, we had this tree fall in our house. It was just, it was a week where it just rained. It's been like this summer and our neighbor's tree split and like a big part, probably, I don't know, like a foot in diameter, slowly, very slowly over the course of a few days, just like came down onto our shared fence and then very slowly onto our house. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and the thing is, we rent. Um, so like and we we know our neighbors, but this one neighbor, he is he's a recluse. And I mean that clinically. He doesn't come out. He doesn't say hi to anyone. And so I we went to his house to try to get his attention. He didn't come out. Oh, wow. We had to go through our property manager to talk to our landlords who knew him, who ended up calling him. And then one day I came home and the tree was just gone. Just magically gone. Just magically disappeared. <laughs> so I, I that's... slow motion disaster. I guess. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome to the American Geophysical Union's podcast about the scientists and the methods behind the science. These are the stories you won't read in the manuscript or hear in a lecture. I'm Shane Hanlon, and I'm Nancy Bompy, and this is Third Pod from the Sun. All right. So we're talking about natural hazards, natural disasters. And the reason that I brought all of this up is that this year, uh, today, if you're listening to it, but May 18th is the 40th anniversary of the major eruption of Mount St. Helens in Washington. And it's erupted like a handful of times uh, since then, but they've all been relatively minor. The, the 1981 was the big one. And it killed 50-some people, and it changed the landscape forever. And actually, at our annual meeting this past fall, past December, I had a chance to sit down with someone who knows a little something about Mount St. Helens. So my name is Seth Moran, and I'm right now the scientist in charge of the Cascades Volcano Observatory. I work for the U.S. Geological Survey, which is a government agency that is responsible for issuing volcano hazards assessments and eruption forecasts. And my scientific background is I'm a seismologist with a specialty specialization of working with earthquakes that happen at volcanoes. Seth has a pretty epic job, like a seismologist who studies earthquakes at volcanoes. That's 
That's like a natural hazards double whammy. Yeah, that's like all the science right there. <laughs> it's like all of science. It's definitely all. It's definitely a bunch of the natural hazards. I'll give them that. Uh, but but that's I, I found that so fascinating. That's so unique. So naturally, I was interested in how he got into his career. Yeah, so there's not many of us that would call ourselves <laughs> volcano seismologists, and it, sure. it is a little bit of a, of a niche thing. And my own path sounds a little bit um, deceptively linear. I was really interested in volcanoes and earthquakes and dinosaurs as a kid, and I lost the dinosaurs but kept the volcanoes and earthquakes. And then when Mount St. Helens erupted in 1980, uh, the books that I've been reading up until that point had all talked about the Cascades as being or volcanoes in in um, in the United States, especially the lower 48, as being sleeping giants. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden, here was the sleeping giant that wasn't sleeping anymore. And a couple of days later, there was a little dusting of ash that fell on uh, the car that was parked on my parents' car um, in Massachusetts. And wow. that that along with all of the coverage that had led up to that uh, was was really fascinating. And that kind of galvanized my interest. How, uh, if you don't mind saying, how old were you? 13. 13. Okay. That's, I didn't know what I wanted to do when I was 13. I, I, and I won't say that I knew this is what I wanted sure. to do, but it was really something that fascinated me. And um, as one figures out what one wants to do with one's life, it's good to pay attention to things that are fascinating and yeah. that often tells you something 13 and knowing what you want to do i like that that blows my mind what did i still you, don't know what i want to do yeah. <laughs> so you, then you definitely didn't know what you wanted to be when you were 13 well i as a kid i always like uh really liked architecture i feel like really? i wanted to be an architect at one point yeah which i'm kind of sad i never pursued that to be interesting. honest interesting um doctor probably because i did like science and math yeah, I just realized I had no aspirations. I didn't want to be anything. I <laughs> like I just I, and I just never thought about it. I didn't know I wanted to be what I am now. Well, now who knows? But a scientist even until I was in college. So thirteen's pretty impressive. Uh, but from there, we talked about uh, not only how he got to where he um, where he was, but then the actual mechanics of what he does and how do you monitor volcanoes on the ground. So a lot of it actually should be done without people actually being on the ground <laughs> because it's a hazardous uh, kind of thing. And there's some inevitable amount of time you need to spend on the ground installing instruments or making measurements with gas. Oftentimes gas monitoring, you really have to go to the vent where the gas is coming out to get a very precise measurement. But um, And also with geologic monitoring, if the volcano erupts, the imperative is you want to collect what erupted really fast before mm -hmm. rain makes it go away. So there's things like that. But in Mount St. Helens in, in 1980, one of the challenges there was it was very difficult to do things like that without people being out there. The technology just wasn't there. It was one of the first uh, eruptions like Mount St. Helens that was monitored by a real-time seismic network. So seismologists didn't have to be out there, although they were mm -hmm. um, out there taking fairly significant risks, putting stations on on the volcano um, in the early parts of the of the crisis for that. But uh, in contrast, there were other kinds of measurements that were being made, like with gas, where, um, among other things, a scientist named David Johnston was uh, on the volcano a number of times, going into the crater that was forming to collect gases. And then another part of it was uh, the volcano was deforming. 
and people could see that by eye, but there wasn't any real easy way of measuring that precisely. What's the, can you describe deforming? Yeah, so deforming just means changing the shape. Okay. And really the, the, the more captivating uh, word is bulging. Okay. There was a flank, no, the, the north part of the volcano was bulging outwards, and people could see that, but there wasn't really a sense of, nobody had a, a good way of quantifying that, just because technological limitations uh, were were what they were. So people had to go out there, they put some reflector targets up on the volcano and then had to be physically present to be um, using basically a laser to measure the distance to these different targets. And then day over day, you check what's the distance change. And uh, that required somebody being out there and it also required good weather and all those other things. And they were able to measure rates and they were able to see if the rates were changing. Uh, But in the end, uh, one of the scientists who was doing that was caught up in the eruption. So, Nancy, can you imagine um, putting yourself in danger to to get the job done? Have you ever been in a situation where uh, it's it's been dangerous for you to do what you need to do? I mean, when I was a reporter, we probably put in some weird situations and not good situations. Um, But one kind of I wouldn't say it was life threatening at all. But um, I was going up with these people uh, up a mountain to check out this um, this area that they had like a piece of land that they had conserved, you know. So Mm -hmm. you're going through like you're it's like you're hiking up a mountain, whatever. And I'm like trying to take notes (laughs) and we're crossing the water and I fell in. <laughs> I fell what, in a stream. What were got you? soaking wet. Uh, oh. My note, but I had my notebook in my hand and was like preserved my notes. You so literally just like were walking. I like, across fell the off stream a rock. You know, like you just... like it's, it's like like some, some rocks on a small stream, and I just like totally <laughs> fell in. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Yeah. Oh man, I can. I'm picturing this in my mind. It makes me so happy. Yeah. Oh well. Uh, not life-threatening, but... Not life-threatening, yeah. sure, sure. Well, uh, so from there, we ended up talking about the actual, like, timeline of Mount St. Helens, because what I think I, di- I didn't quite realize that the eruption was on the 18th, but things were set in motion literally months before then. Mm. It was a pretty compressed timeline when you think back on it, but the first earthquake that caught people's attention was on March 20th. It was a magnitude 4.2. broadly recorded across a pretty uh, recently installed network around the state of Washington. And fortunately, one of those stations was right next to Mount St. Helens. Mm -hmm. And the earthquake itself was located with some error because there there weren't that many stations nearby. And so there was Mm -hmm. uncertainty in the location of about five kilometers, which allowed an interpretation of it was either volcanic or it was on a nearby tectonic fault. Okay. And it took a day or two to see what was happening with the earthquakes, which started increasing in time as opposed to decreasing, which is what you'd see with an aftershock sequence. Um, and so at that point, people knew what they were dealing with and pretty much right away started trying to install uh, uh, stations. Um, it was just seven days after that first earthquake when the first explosion came out of the surface at, okay. uh, at the top. So that was a pretty compressed time scale. <laughs> And then uh, over the course of the next couple of weeks, through overflights and other ways of of monitoring the volcano, people were noticing that uh, the crater was broadening. And then at some point started noticing that the north flank looked different than it had before. And you you think back to then, one of the ways that you could document that is with photography. Mm -hmm. But back then, you took a photo 
and then you had to go off to some place to get it developed. <laughs> there's no and digital. There's no, and you get it developed. And then one of the things that we do today, very commonly, is you set up time-lapse uh, cameras. And then you can just flip back and forth in like a PowerPoint or a QuickTime video or something like mm -hmm. that. But how do you do that with a slide deck? You know, so yeah. Ka-chink. <laughs> Ka-chink. And also, how do you send that to other colleagues who aren't physically present with you, making copies and sending them around? So it was really hard uh, to document in a way that enabled you to, to constrain what was happening and have it be done fast and have it be done in a way that could be broadly transmitted. Now it would be instant. Sure. We'd have webcams out there. We'd have GPS instruments on the volcano. We would know right as would the rest of the world because we put that data um, on the web in real time. Mm -hmm. And so pretty much anybody can see what's going on. But back then it took days, if not weeks, to get the processes completed that would give you kind of a definitive answer for what was happening. And were they trying to do that or they just like you just couldn't like it, everything happened so fast that they they were seeing these visual observations, but they mm -hmm. couldn't then quantify it because of the technology. And, and that's where this electric electronic distance measuring, putting targets mm -hmm. up on the volcano um, that started happening in, in early April. Another really complicating factor is that uh, early springtime is not the time to be trying to do something like this in the Cascades. And, <laughs> and anybody who's been out there, as you mm -hmm. have in April, you know there's a lot of snow. There is. And the weather is not great. Mm -hmm. And a lot of this was helicopter access required. And there were numbers of days where they just couldn't do it. So uh, there, were, there were a number of challenges that they faced in establishing a monitoring network and getting the kind of information they needed to do the job of monitoring the volcano. So uh, the first earthquake was March 20th. Mm -hmm. uh, they begin installing these monitoring stations, these relay points throughout the month of April. Mm -hmm. And then the eruption is in May, correct? Mm -hmm. May 8th? May 18th. May 18th. Okay, thank you. How well did they know or could they guess that it was going to be around then? What was the prediction at that point? Mm -hmm. How accurate was that? And what kind of was the attitudes of folks, not only the scientists, but the people in the area kind of leading up to it while this, all this is going on. Right. From the monitoring perspective, the first week, things ramped up. Mm -hmm. And when things ramp up, it's rel relatively easy to get people's attention and to feel like something's actually going to happen. After that first explosion, um, a lot of the monitoring indicators kind of leveled off. So with the seismicity, the, the rate of earthquake occurrence ramped up until you got to that first explosion, and then that kind of leveled off and actually even declined a little bit. Yeah. Uh, the energy released by those earthquakes also kind of leveled off, and so from those indicators, there wasn't anything that would seem to be building. The first explosion ushered in a period of time where there were explosions daily, and people were trying to find places where they could go watch these explosions. But as you got into the month of May, they started dying off. And it was getting to the point where there was a, there, there was a fair amount of pressure um, coming back on the Forest Service because they put out land use restrictions, they put out exclusion zones and things like that. Um, the exclusion zones at that point uh, incorporated summer cabins mm, that sure. people had on Spirit Lake and releasing the land from the Forest Service. And the Forest Service was saying, no, 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 you can't go there. And uh, there was a lot of pressure on, on that. Also, there was uh, pressure from logging companies to be allowed to come in. And in fact, if you look at the exclusion zone that had been put in place from late April up into uh, May 18th, um, it doesn't, it's not this nice round 
uh, even distance on all sides. It uh, was pretty close on the west side to the volcano, and that reflects where logging companies had uh, exerted pressure to be allowed to work in at fairly close distances. And some of the people that were caught up in the eruption were, were logging folks, and it would have been a lot worse, except that um, the company loggers uh, for Weyerhaeuser and other groups were, it was a Sunday, mm. so they were off. Gotcha. But there were contracting loggers who were still out there working. And there's a really uh, just a very fraught story involving these uh, uh, cabin owners on Spirit Lake that um, they had exerted uh, so much pressure that uh, they let the, um, one of the county sheriffs who was responsible for staffing a roadblock know that they were going to come on May 17th and they were going to they were going to go visit their houses. Oh, wow. And they brought some, some implements to ensure <laughs> that they would be able to get through the roadblock. And so the county sheriff met them, and he had them all sign a waiver that said, I recognize oh, that I'm putting man. my life in, you know, I'm paraphrasing, but of how do you yeah. put your life in danger, and I absolve you of any responsibility. And then they all went in. And how, how many were you talking? Oh, like, you know? tens. Okay. I, yeah, I don't, I don't have an exact sure. number. And, uh, and, and they were escorted by the sheriff, and uh, it was a nice day, and people were kind of hanging out. And uh, towards the end of the day, the sheriff was like, okay, it's time to go. And a couple people were saying, hey, you know, maybe I could stay here for the night. And, and he's like, no, 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 you have to go. And so they all left, and the next morning there was another group of, of, of home leasers that uh, were queued up to come in, and they were gonna go in something like nine o'clock in the morning, 10 o'clock in the morning, when the, the eruption happened at 8.32. Oh, wow. So, you know, just shift that timing 12 hours either way, and the fatalities would have been a lot, lot bigger. And there would have been all kinds of questions about, well, what was the county sheriff doing letting these people in? That's wild that the difference of, what, like an hour and a half um, saved tens, if not hundreds of lives because they weren't in there. I mean, it's, it's interesting about the timing of these things and potentially maybe warning times. Yeah, I mean, like, how much warning do you even get, like, before something's about to erupt? It varies from volcano to volcano okay. as far as how much warning you get. And there's no magic recipe. Some volcanoes, you get months or years of warning. And other volcanoes, you literally get hours. Oh, and wow. it's something that we're, our community is grappling with and trying to understand what's the rationale, what's the, you know, the... the are there systematics that we can work with to understand what, which particular volcano is going to give us that, that kind of that kind of warning? Um, the the th when I said compressed, I was partly talking about the first week. Okay, sure. And, but also that a month and a half between, well, actually two months between March 20th and, and and May 18th turned out really not to be enough time for the whole response system to be ready for what happened on May 18th. So there was all this negotiation about the restriction zone and it changed two times. It was gonna change a third time the next day after May 18th. It was gonna go back out oh, wow. uh, to be a little bit more, more restrictive. And uh, so there was all this um, tug and, uh, and, 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 uh, and pulling and pushing uh, that was happening at, at fairly high levels. And, and that reflected that nobody had really dealt with anything like this before. And one of the things that's um, on our plate now in the, uh, you know, the, the 21st century is to ensure that the lessons that were learned and the stories that come at, came out of 1980 continue to be on people's minds so that the next time we get something erupting, 
on our turf in uh, the Cascades of Washington and Oregon that it'll hopefully be a little bit less fraught on that front. Yeah, so that's actually, I, that's so we got up to um, the, the days leading up and the actual eruption. Um, that's what I'm interested in is kind of like who, who was, who's the pressure being exerted upon? Like who was ultimately making these decisions about the exclusion zone and that type of thing? Um, Cause you've mentioned like local law enforcement, like that was one thing, but it seems like there was probably like scientific and federal agencies mm-hmm. and whoever else, like how does that, how did that interplay work? And yeah. is that interplay different now? Yeah. So it uh, back then it was the Forest Service primarily because they owned most of the volcano, although ironically, uh, Burlington Northern owned the summit. Is that the forest company? That's a the train forest? company, a railroad company. Oh, of course, Northern owned the summit. Yeah. So how uh, does that work? That was there was land trades that were happening uh, all over the place. Okay. And that's okay. what happened. And so <laughs> although the Forest Service could close the volcano, they couldn't close the summit. Yeah. And so there are people that were you know, there were media companies that were landing on the summit and there was nothing the Forest Service could oh, do about goodness. it. That wouldn't happen today. <laughs> um, but it, it was a uh, it was the land management agencies in uh, and in combination with local um, and county and state officials okay. that were making the decisions about what the what, where the lines were, and it was in this case uh, it was the governor that was making sort of the final sign off on in, on exclusion zones, okay. and that was because there was a mix of private and public lands, and it um, just needed to have like one person in, uh, who was making the final decision. So it was pretty chaotic, <laughs> and uh, there have been other emergency uh, crises, not volcanic, that have happened since then. Um, in California, there was the Oakland Hills fire that um, the response there was was um, chaotic enough that that motivated the development of something called the Incident Command System. Okay. And that is now something that is codified by FEMA and is used around the United States for organizing responses. Because um, okay. anytime you bring multi, multiple agencies into it, it gets it can get pretty pretty complicated. So there's this one system that people understand, and things change from from time from incident to incident. But um, that would be the agency. That would be the the not agency, but the um, like the plan, the governing plan, or whatever. The group okay. that would oversee the response and decisions about things like what is the exclusion zone. I was genuinely shocked when uh, he told me what Burlington Northern was, that it was a railroad company and that they owned a volcano. Like what, Nancy, what would you do if you owned a volcano? Huh? That is very, if I owned a volcano, (laughs) I don't even know. What would you do if you owned a volcano? I'd like be scared of it. Yeah, I don't. I'm I know. I don't. It was going to erupt. I don't know. I don't know if I would ever go anywhere near it, frankly. Yeah, but that's not yeah. true. I I talked to one of our one of our good members who knows something about this. Maybe go see it. But yeah, I have no idea. What do you do with a volcano? Yeah. Uh, but from all of this, there definitely were some some lessons learned, uh, for better or for worse. The lesson one of the lessons that came out of 1980 is that. You really want to try and avoid having a volcano wake up on you without having at least a basic level of monitoring capability on it. Sure. Um, because it's, you take risks, you, you miss stuff, there's uncertainties in the interpretations you make because you don't have um, really good information about what just happened. 
And so like that earthquake that started everything off, there was this uncertainty about was it volcanic or tectonic? And you don't want to have that uncertainty. Right. That puts you behind the eight ball right away. So that's a push that we're um, actively engaged in right now and other volcanoes in, in the Cascades and actually around the United States that um, volcanoes that are deemed to be of highest priority, the sort of posing most threat to people either because they erupt frequently or people are, a lot of people are close to them, um, those are volcanoes that we need to be trying to get networks in place that are kind of like what we have at St. Helens. And we're making some progress, but there's a lot of, lot of uh, turf to cover. It's really incumbent upon us to produce products that are intelligible and do a good job of communicating our understanding of the hazards to people in different ways. Primarily, we do that through interacting with um, local communities, with uh, stakeholder working groups. Uh, occasionally, we have public forums, and we have products that go up on the websites and things like that. So our goal is to have people uh, have it be easy for people to get the information. But there's nothing that's forcing anybody to read that. And there's, sure. you know, certainly if somebody buys a home, there's nothing that's forcing realtors to tell people, this is, you're in a Lahar hazard zone. Mm -hmm. And uh, so, that, you know, it's a balance. Well, Nancy, what would you say then the, the moral of the story? Not the whole story, at least the last part here with Seth was talking about. Don't buy a house near a volcano? Oh, uh, yeah, maybe? that's probably that's probably a good one. I feel like back to our original discussion about the natural hazards we have or haven't experienced. It's one thing to be like somewhere cold or be somewhere in a floodplain. But I feel like not being near a volcano is a pretty, a pretty easy task. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's out there. You kind of you kind of can see it. Right. All right, folks. Well, that's all from Third Pod from the Sun. Thanks so much, Shane, for bringing us this story, and thanks to Seth for sharing his work with us. This podcast was produced and mixed by me. And uh, we'd love to hear your thoughts. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, um, and you can find us wherever you get your podcasts or at thirdpodfromthesun.com. Thanks all, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>